Henry Handsome was a larger-than-life outlaw cowboy. At least that's how the legend goes. Henry Handsome Lived and Died examines the creation, evolution, proliferation, dissemination, and degradation of American folklore. Through 30 different short stories, the character, vague idea, false memory, misattributed anecdote, or influence of the titular Henry Handsome does everything from change the course of American media to sculpt modern-day knowledge of manifest destiny. Together, the collection represents the stories that create and define a culture, how those stories are told, and if they ever were to begin with, and if any of that matters at all. Each story was written, recorded, narrated, and produced by me, Elliot Matson. If you'd like to learn more about the collection, go to elliotmatson.com slash henryhandsome. But for now, saddle up and enjoy the story. Henry Handsome Lived and Died. Story number 18. Jerry Rockheim Jr. Bought a New Pair of Slacks. Jerry Rockheim Jr. Bought a New Pair of Slacks. He liked Handsome Hank's haberdashery because of their fine garments. Attention to detail and because he liked folks to ask him where he purchased his clothing. I reckon he had tie clips more than any one sum money I've ever seen in my whole life. That was the early 20th century for you. The upper echelon of society soaring higher in a meteor. We all know what happens to meteors, though. Evelyn Troy didn't put up with Jerry's bullshit, to put it bluntly. He was his father's son, and she didn't care for Jerry Rockheim Sr. when he was alive either. She saw the new junior hotshot at all the galas and political dinners and New Year's Eve parties in his linen sharkskin suits. Son of a bitch probably had a made out of actual sharks. She'd make her assistant get the details on Jerry's coveted clothing and possessions just to upstage him and show him that in this business, you respect your elders or get dealt a swift kick in the nuts. Jerry bought Monet, Evelyn bought two and a Van Gogh. Jerry got Mayor Thompson to name a street after him. Evelyn got a building. Jerry donated a French sculpture of a little bronze boy pissing to the Field Museum. Evelyn bankrolled Buckingham fucking Fountain. Now, Jerry didn't know he was in competition with Evelyn. She just liked to put him in his place from afar. She never had to say a word to him. And maybe if she slowly chipped away at the kid's ego, he'd realize he wouldn't cut out for this world and he'd sell her daddy's company for lower than market value. Evelyn didn't know shit about lumber, but she knew it made money. When her assistant told her about the haberdashery, Evelyn asked her cigarette in its twig-like holder and turtled her neck into her oversized fur coat to contain her smile. She confirmed it was that place in the Gold Coast off LaSalle. She knew it and seeing the gold-leaf lettering on the windows, the warm heron bones and tweeds draped and tailored to perfection. She might have been the first woman to ever set foot in the shop the next day. Giuseppe didn't pay any mind to the eccentric old lady until she took out her ornate checkbook and said she'd take everything. Everything, madame? You speak English, don't you? Or is that Dago mustache pulling on your brain? The place was cleared out by noon. She even had Giuseppe take a razor blade to the lettering on the window. A few weeks later, Jerry Rockheim Jr. would be strolling down Michigan Avenue and see a hobo begging for change wearing the same $1,400 blazer. Turns out Evelyn donated Giuseppe's whole inventory to a homeless shelter on the north side. Evelyn chuckled to herself as she exited the small shop. Her assistant instructed the movers on how to pack the clothing. 
Evelyn took out a cigarette as a few horse-drawn carriages passed by on the saddle, along with one of Henry Ford's new sedan models she'd heard about. Maybe she'd buy one of them just to roll it off a cliff. Evelyn didn't care about the anti-Semitism. More about another young prick making money that could be hers. See, when you got money, you control the narrative. And the more of it you got, the more chapters in the big old book of American history are going to have your name slapped at the top. Maybe Evelyn wasn't an auteur or a gifted storyteller like yours truly, but she liked that control part quite a bit. She watched the equine and metallic beasts rumble past as she repeatedly flicked her lighter and cursed at it through clenched teeth. A hand reached over with a match and lit her cigarette instead. Thank you, Evelyn said with a puff. Her voice was crackling birch bark on a campfire. Eh, don't mention it, Leon said. He snuffed out the match and went back to leaning against the newly vacant shop. Evelyn eyed him up and down. If she were 50 years younger and he were 50 years older. His three-piece black hound's two-suit, red paisley shirt, and greased hair gave him a flare of brilliance and danger. How can a man in such a dapper suit look so glum, I wonder? Well, he just bought all the inventory in the shop I work in, so now I don't got a job. Evelyn bobbed her head as she smoked. Hmm, you must be one hell of a salesman to work at this joint. I do all right. Work on commission. But again, if I can't sell anything... Leon puffed his own cig and plucked lint from his pristine tie. You wouldn't have happened to sell a pair of silk slacks to Jerry yesterday. French blue with white pinstripes. Leon perked up. Mr. Rockheim? Yeah, he's my best customer. Evelyn scoffed. (laughs) Or maybe you're his best salesman. Nah, he just likes to spend money. He likes to make money. I know. It takes a special breed to get someone like us to spend it. Evelyn clicked her tongue and rubbed her ankles together to warm up. Under her enormous fur, different than the one she wore yesterday and the day before, she'd have you know. Her bare, skinny legs were the two ivory tusks of a woolly mammoth. Say, how would you like a job? (laughs) You need me to sell those suits you just bought? When Leon laughed, the dimples in his cheeks and chin deepened. He was a nice boy, and she had an eye for nice things. Eh, not quite. Evelyn snapped for her assistant and made some hand signals a girl understood, but they would be indiscernible to anyone who didn't work for the old dame. She emerged with a liquor bottle full of mapley brown whiskey. Leon could tell the bottle near weighed more than her as she hoisted it to him in her gloved hand. Obadiah Trask whiskey? Listen, Lady Mrs. Troy. Uh, apologies. I know I just lost my job, but I ain't looking to end up in the gutter, too. Evelyn cackled. <laughs> See? With a wit like that, you're going to make me rich. You might do pretty well for yourself, too. The Omnitide Troy Morris Corporation, where Evelyn clung to her board of directors' majority shareholder seat like the Grim Reaper to his scythe, had recently bought a small distillery at her behest. She explained to Leon her intention to market the stuff on a nationwide tour. But first, they needed a rebrand and a spokesman. Nobody wants to drink whiskey named after some dumb shit Kentucky yokel, Evelyn told him as he popped the bottle and sniffed the elixir. We need something new. 
and fresh. Mm, okay. Leon shrugged. What were you thinking? Evelyn looked back at the shop as the movers hauled a small fortune in men's garments away to a societal incinerator. What about Handsome Hank? I don't think anyone's using that name anymore. Leon figured it would take weeks or more for Evelyn to get the new brand ready, prep the tour. Honestly, he half expected to never hear from her again. But the thing about Evelyn Troy was that when she wanted something, she willed it into existence with the sheer tenacity of God creating the earth. She didn't take no day of rest, neither. Leon boarded the tour train the following week and embarked on a national 400-city tour slinging swell and making America's rivers run gold and brown with Kentucky's finest. Figures, right? John Henry built the railroads with his bare hands, swinging two nine-pound hammers just so some rich white folks could drive their trains on them and get richer. Lord knows one of those ain't no tall tale. New York City, Atlantic City, Memphis, Louisville, Los Angeles, Seattle, Las Vegas. Leon hit them all. They didn't even drink in Salt Lake City, but he still got them to buy the stuff. Handsome Hank's the name. He'd say to customers in the press, and you ain't never tasted a fine distilled beverage so divinely dapper, so sartorially smooth, so invitingly inebriant. He'd step down from the train car with a shot glass and find a shy woman in the audience. Say, miss, you think I always look this good? She might shrug or giggle as Leon handed the sample to her with a smile. Well, he'd say, if you drink my whiskey, I'll look even better. She'd toss it back and the crowd would go wild. For months, Handsome Hank rode the rails and made appearances at swanky restaurants, markets, corner drugstores, and trade shows. I don't know who Obadiah Trask was, but you can bet your keister he never left Kentucky and probably married his cousin. His metropolitan counterpart was proven to be Evertown's favorite new visitor. Charles R. Walgreens stocked the whiskey on his shelf right next to the heroin. Charles Lindbergh had a sip and started to get a wild hair up his ass about flying around the world. Every day, Leon sold more Handsome Hank's small batch bourbon. And every day, Evelyn's bank account grew fatter with more fur coat money. Folks, this could be a happy story and I could end it right here. Leon was down on his luck after all. Probably some lesson we could take away about working hard and bootstraps. Only that's a poor man's tale. Poor men don't get no pages in that old history book. And there's something else you gotta know about America in 1919. The relationship between the United States and alcohol has long been an unstable and tawdry love affair. Its passion will intensify like a June thunderstorm, then soberly recoil like the morning mist that follows. Way back in 1826, the American Temperance Society tried to string up a nation three sheets to the wind from a clothesline, but it wasn't until Civil War when things started drying out. The post-bellum Women's Christian Temperance Union kept a thumb on the scale, having success in Kansas, banning alcohol in their state constitution, and promulgating the unpopularity of saloons during the early aughts. By the time World War I fired up, there was a temporary halt on alcohol production. Coupled with a fervent wartime anti-German sentiment, support for a complete ban of Grampy's special medicine was like a match in a tinderbox. Congress passed the Volstead Act in October 1919. 
the 18th Amendment was ratified by January. And at midnight, almost exactly a year later, drinkers around the country got their coasters yanked out from under their half-empty glasses. Had Leon followed politics or the news at all, he probably would have known about this. But things traveled slowly in those days, and he was on a train for most of the year anyway. Leon didn't have a clue Evelyn had purchased the Kentucky distillery for peanuts and intended to sell remaining marked-up inventory to Americans already feeling their throats getting parched. She just needed a good salesman to do it. Leon awoke in bumfuck nowhere to a newspaper proclaiming Prohibition's new stranglehold on the country. Never trust a Christian women's organization whose leader is a hatchet-wielding granny, that's all I'm saying. He telephoned Omnitide Troy Morris Corporation in Chicago, who gave him the number for Evelyn's assistant, who told him Evelyn would call him back in a few hours. Leon sat in his hotel room on the last wooden case of Handsome Hank's small batch bourbon. Hit the phone rang a minute later and it did. He wouldn't have had any fingernails left. Evelyn? Hello? Evelyn? Her voice came through static and uninterested. How's my favorite salesman doing? So, what's the plan with this alcohol ban? Are we going to keep going? Is everything Jake or what? After a few moments where Leon thought the line went dead, Evelyn answered. That would be against the law, sweet Leon. There are no more alcohol sales, so there is no more business. Leon pressed on his eyeballs. When he hunched over, the bottles clinked beneath him. Uh, okay. So wait, so then what am I selling here? Right now? Uh, nothing, I suppose. Then what? I don't understand. You said you'd pay me at the end of the tour when I sold through all the cases, right? And did you? Well, no. I mean, I've got one left. Then it seems like you haven't sold through all the cases. But I can't now. Then I guess you won't. Leon grinded his teeth and took off his Italian leather shoes to stretch his aching feet. You've got to pay me for what I sold, then. Evelyn was already chatting with someone else. Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, if you come back through Chicago, my assistant could write you a check. Did someone at OTMC give you her number? Leon sighed and could breathe again. <sighs> Thank God. That's great. I'll be on a train today. Evelyn paused interminably. Oh, I'm sorry. But that's company transportation. I'd have to deduct travel and lodging expenses from your pay. But you're the reason I'm out here. Leon, I think you're the reason you're out there. Evelyn blew smoke straight into the receiver and it burned Leon's nostrils. You snake. You just wanted to make a quick buck and screw all Leon over, huh? Leon stood and started pacing like his anger would translate better on the move. So what am I supposed to do now, huh? What the hell do I do? Evelyn? It's Mrs. Troy. And I'm Mr. Kiss My Ass. What am I supposed to do? How am I how am I supposed to get home? His voice cracked as the world weighed upon him like a case of whiskey. How how am I supposed to make any money out here? Evelyn took a pregnant pause. Leon could tell it would be the last thing he'd ever hear Mrs. Troy say. Find someone who wants to spend it. For days, Mitchell Garfield swore somebody got murdered in the hotel two doors down from where he was staying. 
but it was just Leon. Flipping mattresses for lost pennies, throwing chairs across the room, breaking mirrors because he didn't care about bad luck anymore. He was living it. Leon broke open the case of handsome Hanks and popped one of the bottles. Wafts of oak and vanilla massaged his aching mind. The sun went down over bumfuck and the moon didn't bother coming out. Leon debated selling the whiskey. Surely some ne'er-do-wells would buy it under the cover of night. It was supposed to be some of the best bourbon in the country. It did smell pert near like an angel's breath, I'm told. He'd traveled close to 3,000 miles and he'd never even taken a sip. He licked his lips that were cracked from the dry desert air and rubbed his throat that was sore from talking to himself so much. He could sell the case and probably pull together enough scratch to make it back to Chicago. Or he could sit right here and drink it. The book closed so hard on Leon that day, he wasn't even the goddamn appendix. Evelyn's pages kept turning, though. After a financial win like that, she had enough money to write the course of the economy for decades to come. When she finally kicked the bucket, her legal team discovered she had no last will and testament. She only stipulated that her money was to remain in vaults in the bank until the institution didn't exist or the cash decayed in the soil, whichever came first. Even by that time, it wouldn't matter if she was gone. One fellow on the board at Omnitide Troy Morris Corporation said for months he swore Evelyn was just a fur coat in an office chair at the head of the conference table. But everyone was too afraid to check. Nah, you can waste your time imagining what happened to her. A death, however, morbid or predictable for a woman her age. Or deserving for a woman like Evelyn. But I find it more interesting to imagine that limp fur coat sitting there, commanding the room without ever saying a word. Thanks for listening to Henry Hansom Lived and Died. If you'd like to learn more about the collection, go to elliotmanson.com slash henryhansom. 